What it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. And today we have on Stephen Hayes. He is one of the most badass psychologists on the planet. He has spearheaded the creation of what is called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is emerging as one of the most effective clinical interventions that the Western world has produced. There has been over a thousand studies supporting the effectiveness of ACT, and this is the man that gave birth to it. He is doing what I hope to have had done by the time that I die. And so he, in a very real sense, is a mentor. And this was a really special podcast to be able to do. And this type of podcast is one of the reasons why I am podcasting. I want to find the people in the world who are creating the most effective psychological interventions for helping our culture heal the tremendous amount of psychological wounds that we've accumulated. And this guy is one of the, you know, he's on the Mount Rushmore of living psychologists producing some new type of intervention. Um, I highly, highly recommend that you have a piece of paper ready for this one. Um, he does drop some book recommendations. And if you're interested, check out a, check out Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Um, it was truly an honor to be able to do this podcast. And if you would like to support the podcast and help other guests like this make an appearance on the podcast, the two most direct ways that you can help is, if you haven't, please go leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if there's a part of this podcast that really stands out to you, please share it on whatever social media platform you enjoy. Um, by the time that you are listening to this, I'm probably going to be in Costa Rica drinking ayahuasca. So please send me some love, send me some prayers, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Namasteezy. Dr. Hayes, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, how, how this happened was so interesting. I had actually just started to study um, ACT, which is um, acceptance and commitment therapy, and you're the person that created it. And as I was beginning to read a couple of books on it, I got an email from what I think is your assistant, basically seeing if uh, you could come on the podcast. And it was just one of the weirdest, true like synchronicity moments that I've had in the last year. And I just knew that it had to happen. And I just want to say thank you for coming on. Oh, sure. And it's kind of fun when there's a, a flow there. And um, by the way, we, I, I always flinch when I hear ACT. I, I call it ACT. And the reason is I'm old enough to have actually been in the room watching ECT sessions. <laughs> it's a bad association. Electroconvulsive um, therapy is not what this is. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if you had to explain, you know, if somebody asked you, you know, who are you and what do you do? Um, how would you explain that to them? Well, I think what I'm trying to bring into the world is science-based processes that touch on the challenge of the human condition without minimization or reduction or saying, oh, it's only this, it's only that. Another way to say that maybe is I'm trying to take what's in the best parts of our culture and our wisdom traditions, our spiritual traditions, 
yeah. and put them into our heads and hearts and hands in a way that empower people to step into the complexity of their life. But to do that in a way that, you know, fits with Western science, that, that right. kind of filters it because so, there's so much out there that's probably unnecessary or woo-woo or kind of baggage that comes along with these things. Sure. And I want to know the, what is the 20% that does the 80%? And yeah. I've spent 40 years trying to figure that out. And I think I have something now to say that uh, does help people orient to what's important. How would your best friend describe you and what you do? Well, I think my wife is my best friend, and she says something that uh, moves moves me because of kind of how it fits with how I would like to be in the world. She she just says, "What you see is what you get," <laughs> and I hope uh, people around me see me that way as trying to sort of be true to my own experience and to take off the clown suit, take off the mask. Absolutely. Try not to pretend. It's sometimes hard, frankly, in the context of things like writing books and (laughs) getting old. And then there's a lot of research and then people kind of have expectations of you and they have ideas about you and so forth. And you can easily, if it's positive, climb into those as, as if, oh, that's who I am. So, and I think that's harmful. I think you see it around you with people get drawn into this kind of ego-based thing of uh, trying to be a pretend person. Uh, what I would hope they'd say about me is I'm who I am and, uh, and, and trying to bring that to the betterment of the world. Absolutely. How would your dad describe you and what you do? My dad, what a sweet question. He's dead long since. And uh, I know he had aspirations for me. You know, I I think what he'd say is he's um, proud of the journey that I went on. I know he was kind of worried about me because yeah. I could get in my own way. And you're talking to an old hippie <laughs> at certain times looked like, and you know, my friends did, you know, crash and burn in the sixties. I mean, literally yeah. not make it out alive. Uh, but others made it out alive, but you know, with their hepsy and stumbling along and this or that, and having kind of ripped up, things that made it hard and others you know really caring for the best of that era which is actually kind of another way of thinking about what it is so i think he'd probably say um you know that uh, that i stepped up to that uh, challenge and walked through it in a way that uh yeah is uh, bringing something useful to the world and he's proud of me that's what i think he'd say i really really wish he could see kind of where i went because he yeah, died during uh, my uh, graduate school. And he had a premonition. He actually said to me once, I think you're going to be a great psychologist. And um, it actually brings uh, tears to my eyes to remember it. I wish he could see it. It would have been so much fun. Yeah. How would your mother describe you and what you do? I, there I actually know because my very last conversation with her she said so. I mean, she, she was starting 
to become pretty cognitively impaired. She was about to turn 91 and um, she had forgotten that I was coming. And I know her so well, I can unpack just a few words. Uh, I'll say it in her voice, but I'm not making fun of my mother. It's just, I want you to, this frail old lady voice was not her voice until yeah. right towards the end of her life. But she walked in and when she saw me sitting in a wheelchair in a care facility, she lit up and she said, Stephen, my son. And then she turned to a, a little old lady who was also in a wheelchair next to her. And she said, he's a famous man. <laughs> And then she caught herself in the mom brag. <laughs> and she said, he's a psychologist. And then he, she turned to me and said, uh, and I know what she was saying. She was giving me a message to not crawl inside the mom brag. Mm. She said, uh, he helps people. He helps people. Yeah. So I think that's what she would say. That was what she did say. That was yeah. one of the last words. When I actually got the call that she was uh, dying, I said pneumonia. They, they call it the old person's friend because it's not a harsh way to die. But two or three days into that, and I ran to the, to the Southwest uh, portal and I got down to Phoenix and held her hand. And she knew that I had arrived, but um, she wasn't able to speak, so... Yeah. He he helps people is the last words I remember her saying to me. Let's say that you're in a dream state or maybe you're, you know, back in the 60s and you did some LSD or some mushrooms and you came face to face with that thing that we might use the word God for. How would that thing describe you and what you're doing? I hope... He or she would say um, he loves people. I have a thing that I put at the bottom of all my emails. It's a little take on our competitive culture. <laughs> uh, and it says, uh, love is not everything. It's the only thing. And, uh, you know, the original quote was winning. <laughs> yeah it's the only thing and uh, you know and that's fine too I, I you know winning done done as a game done as play done as hey you know and uh, this is a fun thing to do while alive that's cool and that in itself is a loving thing to do there's not very much more loving than enjoying playing games but uh, that's not I think what Vince Lombardi meant I think yeah. he meant, uh, you know, being on top and hearing the applause and having the award. And so um, I kind of get that. I have that. I feel that. I think we all do. Yeah. And in the end, uh, I think love is what matters. What do you recall is the first memory that you ever had? I was um, with an, a, a great uncle of mine, Uncle Milton, and I was holding his hand and crossing the street to go get ice cream. I think I was being cared for him because the family was about to move and I knew it 
we were going to move to New Mexico and then to California. And I think at the time I probably was three. And um, what I wanted to do was to have him take me back to the bedroom to get my teddy bear to take to get the ice cream. And I remember him as a very kind man, uh, but I don't think he wanted to turn around, walk around, go up those long steps, go in that room and get the teddy bear. And I'm looking over my shoulder right now, and there's that bear almost uh, 70 years later uh, with an eye that's fallen out. And <laughs> it's been loved to death, you know, <laughs> for missing on all parts of it. There's a leg that fell off that was sewn on. And, that's my uh, first memory and my fellow traveler of my beloved little bear is still with me. When I got Ooh. an award actually by the, uh, the uh, Association of uh, Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, a Lifetime Achievement Award, they must have thought I was nuts, but <laughs> I gave this talk. <laughs> and I, I did a little riff on my bear. I showed pictures of my bear. <laughs> I love that. I noticed... My mentor looking to the person sitting next to him, going like, "What is he doing?" <laughs> but you know, I do. Re I really do think there's something in that. Those early memories. You know, you think of those early sweet memories we have. They uh, they kind of lock us down or ground us in some way. Absolutely. And then we get so adult and so busy and so mindy and so judgmental and so much into achievement. And, you know, pretending as if we're not going to die in the end and pretending as if, you know, nobody's going to remember our names. I mean, what we're here to do is put something in the stream that moves forward like a molecule moving a wave through the ocean. You're not going to travel with the wave. You're moving it forward. That's all you're doing. Mm. And these early stories that sometimes we have, the things that bring us to tears that have that kind of bittersweet quality, I think, are far more of an anchor you know, than uh, reading yet another uh, <laughs> magazine article about success and how to achieve it. Yeah, man. Unless you've got a pretty wise person writing that article, sometimes what's in there might even be toxic to the human soul. What do you remember being the primary emotion that was attached to that first memory? I think it was one of... Uh, of yearning and kind of a fear of loss yeah. and uh, wanting uh, somebody who was caring for me to attend to that. And um, so I don't remember it with a harsh memory with regard to my, with uncle Milton, but uh, I think it was more self-focused really of, I want my bear, but you know, of course I must've been, looking back with an adult mind, knowing that we were moving. Why am I staying with Uncle Milton? What is this? Where are we going? Et cetera. Mm. Feeling the anxiety of that and being able to hold your bear, even while you're going to get an ice cream, which is pretty positive, yeah. pretty sweet, pretty kind. A good thing to do with a little one when a lot of chaos is happening around them. So I think the answer would be uh, a kind of a, feel, a, a fearful yearning to not, leave something loved behind what do you remember as the first story 
that really captures your mind as a child? Like maybe it was a story that was told to you by a parent, you know, from their memory. Maybe it was a book that was read or a movie that was seen. But what do you remember being the first story that really captured your mind as a child? Well, that's a good one. I, I'm going to a little uh, later, but uh, I remember a big book of, uh, uh, so this is after I'm able to read, of uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. And I'm probably seven or eight or something, but the book was not mine. And it had fantastical drawings in it. Uh, I think it was a classic book. In fact, I, I believe my, I have it in the house because my mother uh, bequeathed it to me. Um, and my, my brother, I think, brought it over just recently. Um, but uh, so I, I, I'm trying to focus on a specific story, but I, I remember more of the pictures and, um, you know, these... Uh, dreamlike uh, stories that he wrote yeah. that were uh, fearsome. Yep. What it brings to mind, actually, is not a story I was told, but an experience I had that I think is actually relevant. And if I can do a free association connection, is it Please. okay? One of my earlier mem memories as a kid was having uh, nightmares about dinosaurs uh, coming to get me. And they would come to the window and look in the window and, and with gigantic dinosaur eyes. And uh, eventually I'd get so afraid. I'd run from room to room, but they'd always find the right window. I would run from the house and then I'd be in one of those running dreams where no matter you know, how fast and hard you run, yeah. you, know, you can't run fast enough. And no matter where you turn, you know, they still follow. And, uh, Eventually they catch you and then you wake up as you get eaten. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in there I had a lucid dream and I connected to these early sort of dreamlike Edgar Allan Poe stories, or at least the pictures. And uh, it came to mind in a lucid form of that, that if I turned and moved towards the dinosaur, I'd wake up faster. Wow. Yeah. I wanted to wake up. This was not a thing. <laughs> So I spun around and did it, and I woke up. What I did is I ran right at the dinosaur, leapt in its mouth, and woke up. Well, then wow. a couple times more, I'm, I remembered that. And I began to do that more regularly, and it uh, turns out dinosaurs don't like that. They, they stopped <laughs> wanting to come and play. But uh, this free association I'm having here is that this early uh, uh, connection with stories that had dark secrets and so forth, which... I now understand um, I found things out about my mother just within the last year and a half uh, after she's dead um, that were just horrifying. And my house was filled with dark secrets. And so um, uh, it was hard to be a kid in that house. My dad was yeah. an alcoholic. My mother was OCD and depressed. And uh, I didn't know till I was 14 
that I was Jewish by the maternal line. I was told my mother's name was Ruth Eileen, and it's Ruth Esther. And uh, I could get into that, unpacking that story, but uh, well, I'm kind of there. Do you want to kind of do a short version? Please. She was, um, apparently her father converted to marry her mother and they moved to, from Germany to the U.S. in the uh, late 20s, early 30s. But with the rise of German nationalism, he became a Nazi sympathizer and would tell her things like, don't tell people you have tainted blood. And so, and it was a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism. I mean, it wasn't just Germany. I mean, it was the United States of America. And well, you can see it now today, can't you? Yeah. Um, it's still there in, in very ugly forms. It didn't go away, hidden under rocks. But, well, uh, her father eventually divorced her mother while she was in a TV sanitarium. And my mother was now in college and her mother asked her to come uh, home. And the part that I just found out, I thought for the longest time, the dark secrets were all about how many relatives died in the Holocaust, how they died, her conflict over her Jewish uh, uh, background or, or, and, and not knowing what to do with the conflict between her mother and her father, and then raising us as Catholics and not telling us anything about it. But this final part of the story really glued it together in a different way which is uh, on 23andMe, I found out that my mother's mother's brother's son lived about 80 miles away and was about my age, even though it was a, young, a generation earlier. Wow. And so I contacted him, but I didn't know he was even there. And uh, one of the early things he told me in the couple of visits we've, we've had since, it was only about a year and a half ago that I found out about him about where less my mother's mother's brother's son lived was that she, after being uh, divorced and still in the TB sanitarium, begged my mother to move back out of college from across the country and to care for her, even though she was in a sanitarium, couldn't be cared for really. What it would mean is visiting her periodically. And my mother said, no, I'm in college. I can't. And a week later, she died. Wow. And what Les said is what I always kind of suspected is that she killed herself. So here I'm looking at my mother washing her hands until they bleed. And oh. getting so depressed, she wouldn't move for months. She would stand in front of the oven with her butt. In the, she'd take the, the door down a little bit, turn on the oven to make it warm and to put her butt there and to stand there and not move. And I knew even at eight years old, that's not normal. That's yeah. not right. Something's wrong. And the poor thing, you know, was uh, believing that she killed her mother. And wow. I'm finding that out now at age, at the time, like 69. Yeah. And going like, wow, you know, these stories that we, that echo, they echo across generations. Yeah. And um, even at the neurobiological level, you know, the epigenetic oh, sure. regulation of the Holocaust, you know, the survivors of the survivors are still, 
having epigenetic, uh, you know, like methylation of stress-related genes, you know, because you're like getting prepared for a harsh environment. Yeah. You know, some of this stuff actually biologically passes on, not just culturally, but I for sure had that double whammy. And I think there was something in those Edgar Allan Poe stories that kind of resonated to me with trying to make sense of a home that had dark secrets that I had no understanding of. And even today, I'm only now coming to an understanding of. Yeah, it's it continues to um, blow my mind how much <clears throat> children absorb and they don't even understand that they're absorbing it and then their dreams are trying to process it and then <clears throat> the art that they're interested in is trying to process yeah. it too. <clears throat> Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of my life's work has been on how to open up some of these doors. I don't think yeah. you do it. I just going there and commanding, you know, uh, mm -hmm, for sure. Sesame says open, you know, that just isn't the way it works. I mean, you try to fight your way down into your memories and so forth. And I don't think you have to go under the, through the entrails of life. I really don't. I think what you right. need to do, it's the past that's in the present. That's important. Exactly. What you need to do is to be able to read what's present and to be open enough that one step at a time, it's not a speed race. You don't get a blue ribbon at the end. There's not a speedometer glued to your forehead. But one step at a time, can we kind of peel back the onion? Can we become more fully who we are? And can we use that to be able to direct our attention towards what's of importance around us, the people that we love and the things that we want to do during the time we're given? Yeah, what I really love is I've never heard someone articulate it the way that you just did, but it perfectly captures how I think about it too. And it's what's important is the past that is in the present. Because the way that I think about it, I was really inspired by Viktor Frankl and, oh, yeah. um, you know, Man's Search for Meaning and Logotherapy. Sure. And his idea of, you know, focus on the future that you want to manifest. And then as you go towards that, whatever past comes up into the present, that's the past to deal with now. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, question? Well, you know, in the early days of acceptance and commemorative act, the, if you bought an act book and you went down on Amazon and said, people who buy this book also buy, I mean, now there's so many act books they self-reference, yeah. but back in the day, right there at the top would be uh, Yalom and Frankel. And, and those know, are my two favorite, man. Yes, there you I go. love it. There you go. Of course, of course. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm, you know, what's, if you know kind of psychology, I'm out of the behavioral wing. Yeah. But the behavioral wing has been deeply interconnected. This wing, the wing that I'm out of, which is this very functional contextual wing, yeah. is, has always been connected up to that crew. You know, that's Skinner won the American Humanists Award. Who would have thought right. <laughs> that one of the, the persons who developed gestalt therapy was a rat-running behavior analyst? I mean, mm. the, the cartoons that we have in our head about right. how psychology is in this camp, that camp, this camp, is really not right. And for sure, part of what I've been wanting to do is actually bust these walls down so that, you know, so that a Frankel or a Yalom can hang out with people who know something about what happens when you put rats in operant chambers and yeah. find a, a useful conversation in there that can help people. And 
uh, it's what I've tried to do professionally. And actually, that's what's in this new book is telling the story, the science story and the personal story of the arc of that work and then trying to make it useful for people so that they can see that these processes that we've done down to go everywhere that a human mind goes. Yeah. And I, I, I want to dive into act very deeply on this podcast, but the last question that I want to yeah. um, ask before we dive into that is the reason I ask people what their favorite story is when they're a child is I then ask them how they would tell that story as like a bedtime story to a smart 10 year old. <clears throat> and given that yours was an amalgamation of a dream sequence and an Edgar Allan Poe vibe. Um, yeah. If you had to turn that into a story that you could give to a 10 year old who maybe is having nightmares, um, how would I would like to invite you to share that story as if you were telling it to your child who is yeah, 10 well, or your fact, grandchild. In fact, I actually face that situation because both my now uh, 31-year-old, I've got four kids. My eldest is about to turn 50. My youngest is 14, about to turn 14. Uh, so I've had children in the home for 55 straight years when this little guy goes to college. But... Uh, which, by the way, in the Guinness Book of World Records, it should be. Wow. <laughs> it's it's a lot. I, I love kids. But both uh, my uh, uh, eldest son is turning 31 and my second daughter is turning 28. When they were in that range, in, in that little younger, maybe the eight, nine, they developed uh, nightmares and night terrors and things like that. Yeah. And I'm thinking now of my daughter named Esther. Mm. Uh, just to close the circle. Absolutely. I'm not named Eileen. <laughs> um, my daughter um, had seen a frightening movie. I think it was Gremlins or something like that. And she was afraid yeah. that these little thing, these beasts lived in the toilet and would like bite her if she went there in the, at night and had to pee. And so what I did is I, I said, Actually, I told her like a little made-up story that these are uh, little creatures that live in you. And they're like orphans, and they have no place else to go. Mm. If you push them out and try to cast them out, it would be like they would just wander around trying to get back in because they have no place else to go. And I said, so could we do something else like... When they come to you in your dreams and you wake up, what if we make a, a little kind of like a bed right here for them? Yes. And man, I know they're scary looking and ugly looking, but they need something from you. Yeah. And could we like put them in this bed right here and let them know that it's okay that they're here and uh, they have a place? And uh, she did that. And very quickly, I mean, within a night or two, it, it passed away and she was able to go get her water and pee at night and so forth. And so I tried to tell her an Edgar Allan Poe-ish kind of yeah, story man. about the monsters that come, but in a way that um, showed self-kindness and yeah. compassion towards that parts of us that are frightened and, and don't know what to do. 
it it brings tears to my eyes, man, because um, like I know so many adults who have nightmares and who have yeah. these parts of themselves that they won't accept and they won't allow in and they allow it to terrorize them. And the wisdom that you gave your daughter is wisdom for all of us. And it's if you're having nightmares, the part of the dream that is terrifying is a part of you that is neglected and judged and exiled. And yeah. it's it's asking to come home. And if, if you could turn towards it and accept yeah, exactly. it, it transforms from, you know, the, well, and that turning towards, I actually have this new book, I, I, one of the working titles at one point was turning towards and then turning points and all kinds of ended up yeah. pivot was the main title. And then it ends up with a subtitle, how to pivot towards what matters. But it's this idea of taking this part of you that wants you to go in this direction and is yearning for something that's, that's, worthy it's it's not i mean even when you're doing something really self-destructive what you're yearning for is not self-destructive it's what you're doing with it that's self-destructive yeah. and so like yearning to feel yearning to have like a a sense of wholeness and understanding or to belong to to connect you know to uh to sort of know where you are, to be able to choose what's meaningful towards you, to become competent in pursuing that. All these kind of basic yearnings that our mind gives us all kinds of solutions to. Like, for example, run from the scary parts. Hide and they won't find you. Learn how to fight it. Another beer will do it. You know, right. all of these kinds of voices within that are like <laughs> not meant to harm us. They're just this part of us that is great for doing your taxes or fixing your car and it's just horrible when it comes to being a historical creature with a past with a history with stories that echo down with feelings that are confusing and you know not knowing how to enter into this different story of a hero's journey where you take these challenges and fight find a deeper sense of self that allows you to step into the hell of your own history and make use of it in a way that's empowers what you really want to be about i and, love that phrase the hell of your own history yeah and we're all carrying around these secrets you know absolutely and the big joke is we're all carrying the same freaking secrets <laughs> all right i feel so, shame i feel inadequate yeah, i don't exactly. love myself like i don't feel like i'm enough. comparing yeah. my insides to other people's outsides so uh, you know but but you have to learn it and relearn it and relearn it and relearn it yeah, I have a, a TEDx talk where I talk about the pivot point of my whole life. Where it's so good. It's it's such a good talk, man. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, people can find it just by Googling my name and TEDx. There's two of them, and I like them both. But one's very light and cheery about how to... Oh, I watched the dark push, one. Push the, push the line on the leash, and the, the first one is the dark one, Dark Night of the Soul. But... I, you know, that turning towards a dinosaur that I knew how to do when I was a little boy by just stumbling on it somehow. Yeah. Maybe, maybe somehow my parents or others gave me the seeds. I don't know. And that's in that story with my own daughter. Well, yeah, but when I developed a panic disorder as a, as a grown up and couldn't give a lecture in front of undergraduates, you know, I had to show them films because the only thing I could do and even that was hard because my hands would shake so hard and it was real films back then with like sprockets and stuff <laughs> uh, but 
it, you know, I did all, as I say on the TED, I did all the logical, reasonable, sensible, and pathological things your mind tells you to do. And it made everything worse. Yeah. And I had to actually hit bottom before, hit bottom meaning I have no way out. I cannot function. Somebody asked me, what's the hardest part about this book you've just written? And the hardest part is I put the personal stories in there. Yeah. And I was telling the story. Oh, gosh, it's dangerous to go here because mm -hmm. I was telling the story to somebody who inter was interviewing me about the hardest part of the book and about, you know, not knowing where the, I've got two strands, excuse me for it. I'll try to wrap them up. But not knowing where that dark night of the soul hit where I think I'm having a heart attack. And then I realize in the middle of it, I'm just having a panic attack. Yeah, man. And I, I could picture it. I didn't know where it was. And, and I said, I'm not going to, I don't want to write this book if it, if I've exaggerated, if it's not real. I need to know that that, that actually happened exactly that way. And, um, I, you know, in the proposal, I'm trying to find it and trying to find it. And I'm, trying, I'm emailing people, what did, did, there was a room like this? Did you have a house with a shag carpet? And finally, I find an ex-girlfriend who says, that's my apartment. Mm. And I sent her the, the outline. And she said, yeah, that's exactly what it was. And I like wept for hours. Because, um, you know, when you're going back into these really dark places, and then I'm wondering, you know, is this the... You know, just a, an old man reconstructing history. And I know right. I'm doing that some because that's how the brain works. For sure. I've actually noticed now that I'm telling some of these stories that they're actively <laughs> changing yeah. in front of me. Not changing their content, but they don't have the same punch anymore. So, they absolutely. You know, they're integrated more. But um, Exactly. So where I was going with that is that I, you know, at each stage... We have to keep learning these lessons. It's kind of like no matter how big you get, there's more big to get. And at the, <laughs> stuff, at the zone of growth, your mind says, yeah, but not this. Right. Says, yeah, that worked there, but it's not going to work here. You know, you really need to run, fight, and hide here. Mm. You know, like you can't cry on Oprah. <laughs> you know, whatever the freaking thing is. You know yeah. what I mean? Climb into the clown suit. Do it. Do it, do it, yeah. put on the mask, do it. And uh, man, as far as I can tell, at my age, message to young people, it never stops. You just yeah. get bigger, but at the zone of growth, it's the same challenge. And by the way, it's not easier. <laughs> and it doesn't Her. even occur to you some stuff. I, You know, challenges... Why wouldn't you then, having met them, just bring you? Well, once it occurs to you, you can bring resources. You do have resources when you go through these things that can be life transforming. But you still have to apply it, and it doesn't yeah. always occur to you. So you stumble and fall. And, and I think really what we can hope for is stumble and fall and get up quickly. And if there's something in a liberated mind that's really, I think, useful, it's the tools to do that. It's not the ones to live happy, happy, joy, joy, sugar soup life. That's not mm -hmm. real. And it's not no. healthy anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. On that rant. No. <laughs> a little no. complex. It's, it's perfect. Um, 
what was the journey that brought you to the beginnings of creating ACT? Well, I'm a child of the 60s. I've consumed more chemicals than I should have. <laughs> but I'm never a big druggie. I wasn't that. But, and, and actually, back, yeah, I, I, I'm off on another story about it. You know, psychedelic therapy is coming back. Yes, it is. I was, I was, giving, uh, I was asked to discuss uh, some of this work on putting ACT into psychedelic therapy. ACT is being adopted around the world as one of the best models to do that. And there was some cool data, and it was at a conference. I said, well, will you be the discussant? Okay, sure. Get the old man up there to, to be the discussant. <laughs> right. I got up, and unexpectedly, I just started to weep in front of the whole freaking group. Yeah. Because what I wanted to say was, it wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what happened later. <laughs> it was a spiritual journey of all generations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And did we make a horrible mess of it? Yes. <laughs> we absolutely made a horrible mess of it. But, you know, it's not like we had really good guides there. Right. I mean, some of us thought the chemicals were the guides. Of course that wasn't true. Of course that wasn't true. There's no indigenous culture that uses these things that way. Without shamans, correct. Yeah. Yes, you got to have people help you. You have to have preparation. You have to do it in the same place. And you don't do it every day. You do it only occasionally, you know, et cetera. And, and anyway, but coming back. So, you know, next thing you know, it's back to the land. I did that too. And uh, next thing you know, you go back and visit those fo folks and they happily come out with a shotgun wondering why you showed up because they got plants on the back 40. And, you yeah. know, so my, you know, yippee, woohoo, you know, love is the only thing kind of culture turned into some sort of weird, twisty, selfish, self-focused, protective, paranoid world in some of its aspects. But I had that background, and I had yeah. this Esalen background, and the early T groups, and the exploring your own motions. The first undergraduate paper I ever wrote was, a, I, I found it actually, and I've lost it again. I've got to find it. I wrote a little piece about it. it, was on how we should use exposure. This is in 1960, what is it, 67, 68. How we should use exposure, not just to handle situations, we should use it to handle our own emotions and we should be exposing ourselves to the range of emotions. That's yeah. kind of like, mm, that's pretty interesting, dude, <laughs> you know, as an undergraduate. Yeah. But, and then uh, the human potential movement and uh, the Estian folks. I mean, without the Estian folks, I don't create act. You can see it in there. I wrote a thank you letter to Werner Earhart on his 80th birthday about three years ago and he kindly replied and he's actually sort of been following the act stuff the the um, exposure to eastern traditions i lived in a religious commune for a while wow. uh, you know i, I uh, uh, joshua sasaki roshi a really famous zen teacher arrived in los angeles and within one month of arrival i'm sitting in front of him listening to his early lectures in japanese he didn't at that time speak a word of english but here's the dark part. You know, the 60s went sour. I remember sitting on a teepee, in a teepee, looking down over a field of teepees on a commune I'm living on. 
And this young lady comes out of the teepee with this guy right behind her shouting, if I see you going into his teepee one more time, I'm going to burn it down. And I'm going like, oh, God, you know, you could take the, you know, the, the middle class, it, you can, the folks out of the middle class and put them in communes, but you can't take their training out of it. Inside yeah, of, man. You know, this is not going to work. We don't know how to do this it's kind of free love, blah, blah, blah. So, that, man, that's so complex and hard. I don't, it, maybe if somebody can still do it, I see people trying to revisit this with polyamorous, whatever. Good luck. I mean, I hope you can pull it off. But, man, my generation made a mess of it. But uh, and, and not just that. There's this little piece. I know this is a long story, but I have a feeling your podcast no, permits it. I learned early on the gurus weren't to be trusted. Yeah. Um, Kriyananda, who has, ran the uh, commune I lived on, Ananda Farm, uh, you know, I'm there when one of the women in the camps starts crying during the communal lunch and says, I led the master astray. And then the shock goes through the room as one after another, every woman in the room says, I thought I led the master astray. Yeah, man. Go Google it. Get on Wikipedia. Absolutely. And the old coot, when he was like 80 years old, did it again and almost lost his whole entire retreat center and everything. And then go, the next thing, Google, go to Wikipedia, uh, Joshu Sasaki Roshi. Yeah. He's almost 100 years old and he's getting sued by his acolytes, female acolytes. Yeah. So here's what I take out of the 60s. No freaking gurus. I'm not interested, number one. Number two, unguided, unwise explorations into this more spiritual place that empowers us, that lifts us up, that makes us whole, that orients us, is unwise. We can't yeah. just do it fresh. Oh, I've got an idea. Hey, let's explore. Man, you, you know how many generations have had that thought? And you know how... Do you think you know, it all worked out so great when you look at your parents and you look at the past generation? No, you don't. When I looked at mine, I saw people who loving, wonderful people, but didn't know how to get out of their own way. And they were suffering yeah. so enormously. And, you know, I made a promise to myself, I'm going to do something about that. I'd look at the TED Talk. And you, if you've seen it, you know it. Well, what could guide us? Here's my answer. Western science. Western science. Don't be telling me Buddha was a scientist. No, I'm just not doing I'm just not going there. <laughs> but yeah. Was was the dude wise? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, all of the wisdom traditions start with mystics who are wise. Yeah. And they all rein in judgmental analytical language. Now now I know how hard this is. But I don't think just validating that, for example, meditation works is the end of the story, the monks and magnets work. That leaves the traditions untouched. And I want to put things on the factory floor. You can't send Joe Six back to a 10-day silent retreat. Right. Are you kidding me? Well, what can we put into the modern world that we can do at this hyper speed that we're now functioning on that right. I can't even really fully participate in. You know, I look at what kids are doing to social media and I go like, gee, you know, 
I just can't get on that spaceship. I can't. For sure, I mean, man. Doing my email list is about all I can do. <laughs> I can't do Twitter feeds and stuff. I just can't. I'm too yeah. old. Anyway, but, and we've come up with, that's what a liberated mind tells us the story of, that there's, we think, six really important processes. Yes, I know there's more. But you, the 20% that does the 80%, they yeah. hang out together. They make good evolutionary sense. You can measure them. You can target them. You can change them. We're sitting on top of more than 3,000 studies, th- more than 300 randomized trials, wow. almost 100 studies of processes of change inside randomized trials, 100 component studies. Most of this stuff is geek talk. If people don't know what I'm talking about, let's just say, A, it's a lot of data. B, 40 years of work. C, focused on this, not giving people a package to follow or a trademarked therapy to genuflect in front of. I don't want that form of guru either. Yeah. In fact, we've refused any trademarks. We've refused even to certify therapists because I don't want to create that hierarchy where I'm at the top and then what, when I die, but disciples are going to do it. I mean, that. instead, what are the processes of change that either take a life in a negative direction or liberate a human life? Yeah. And the liberated mind I'm talking about is how to put our mind on a leash and take this wonderful thing that we came up with 200,000 to 2.8 million years ago. We know it's not older than that because the, the uh, chimpanzees don't do it. They don't do what your 12-month-old baby does. And that's about how old but our, had a common ancestor. Can right. we take this new thing and sit it up on top of these half a billion-year-old processes yeah. of our memories, our learning, you know, operant classical conditioning, habituation, you know, half a billion years old, this new thing on the block that you and I are doing right now? And can we find a way to sort of manage that by putting the mind on a leash, putting problem solving on a leash, putting judgment, criticism, comparison, prediction, rumination on a leash. There's times to have them, but put it on a leash and then show up to what your emotions give you, to watching your thoughts form and to find this sense of self that is beyond all that, that can orient your attention flexibly, fluidly, and voluntarily towards what's important inside and out right now, broadening, narrowing, shifting, or staying on what's important right now, and make some choices about what you want to put in your life or the qualities of your actual behavior that you want to put into life, and then build habits around that. Those are the six processes. We have names for them. We can measure them. We can change them. And when we do that, what the book tells is almost every area of life starts opening up. You know, I was in Rio and saw people win gold medals with ACT coaches. Uh, My wife's Brazilian, so we went down there the first time I went to an Olympics. I know that you can run a business more effectively and better be a better leader if you bring these processes into your head's heart heart and hand. These are the processes to predict whether or not you're going to develop a anxiety disorder if you already have one if you're also going to get depressed and they also can help you walk out of that they help you walk through the challenge of physical disease they predict whether or not you're going to become an opiate addict when you've had a an operation 
Or are you going to go through a process where, yeah, you used Oprits and now you're, you're back in, uh, you know, in almost everywhere that we look, and I'm not saying it's just act uber all this. I'm saying these processes are irrelevance. They're in our spiritual and wisdom traditions. And so what I carried forward from that 60s journey was yes to the heart of it, no to the way it was done. And uh, let's find a way to channel what was good inside of that generational thing and uh, I want to bring it into the modern world in a way that helps uh, young people carry it forward. Absolutely. And specifically, what are the six processes? Well, the names to these that I just gave you, we could spin, or spin it around this way. Uh, the hardest one to name is the transcendent sense of self, this pure awareness, just witnessing self, observing self, noticing self perspective-taking sense of self, the I here nowness of awareness, period, end of story. That doesn't have a name because it doesn't have edges that you can right. experience. You can't experience the edges of your own consciousness consciously. You can't do it. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and so if it, that means it's not thing-like because everything that's a thing has edges. And this is something that just is ineffable because of that. But starting from this kind of more spiritual side of you. Can I say it that way? Or transcendent sense of self. Can we learn to step back from the voice within and to notice our thinking? We call that diffusion. It's a made up word, (laughs) but it's, it's the, it's not diffusion, like, but fusion, like, like, you know, diffusion, which is sort of like taking lemonade back out to its parts. Mm. So that when we think, we don't just enter into the world structured by that thought, but we notice that we're having a thought, right. just like that. And then in that little gap, choice can happen. Is this useful to me? Do I right. want to chase this more? Is now the time to do it? Is it like that? There's a there's a little so noticing your thinking, we call it diffusion. With experiencing your own emotions, uh, memories, bodily sensations, with a sense of openness with an attitude of dispassionate curiosity. Like, oh, I'm feeling this. Gee, notice when that happened, this came up. If I feel it in this part of my body, we call that acceptance. Mm. Not meaning like, oh, you have to accept it, or you should tolerate it or resign yourself to it. But the original meaning of the word still in English is when we give a gift to somebody that's really a precious gift, and you say, here, would you accept this? You know, and we're asking, will you receive it willingly? And mm. that's what we mean. To receive our the echoes of our past that is the source of our wisdom with this attitude of of yes. Wow. I'll carry you with me. You know, like back to my daughter, you know, the even the little gremlins have a place in yeah. my heart, you know. And then so we call that acceptance. And then flexible attention to the now. And that means letting go of rumination and worry where the mind carries you off to the conceptualized past and future and come into the present and just notice in a way that's flexible, fluid, and voluntary. I don't mean like your kid in front of a video game. I don't mean wanting attention <laughs> at the moment. I mean, I can make choices to broaden or narrow to shift or stay of what I'm attending to. 
yeah. based on what I'm up to. That fifth one is then values choices. Just by choice, not by pros mm -hmm. and cons or judgment, but by the leap into it's okay to care, which is the flip side of the place you hurt very often. That's also the place where you wake up. It's both the sweet and sad place. Wow, I like that. The place where yeah. you hurt is the place where you wake up. Yeah, it was actually a hashtag for all this little thing that you know, the publicist that the book came up with is uh, we hurt where we care. Uh, I don't understand hashtags very much, but people <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so values is the way we talk about that. Chosen values, intrinsic yeah. meaning. And then the last one there, I become a behaviorist of committed action. And what I mean by that is not just forcing out behavior or something, but this continuous process of building larger and larger patterns of values-based yeah. actions in our life. Absolutely. Not out of this perfectionistic, you know, hand-washing kind of thing of, ooh, I made a mistake. But when you, when you slip and fall, standing back up and doing it again, when you slip and fall, stand back up and do it again, you know, that over and over and over repeating building out, building out, doing the loving thing, if that's what you're up to, and doing the genuine thing, if that's what you're up to, and doing the creative thing or the caring thing or the, uh, you know, communicative thing or the, you know, I don't know what you're up to. You got to tell me. But putting the qualities that are intrinsic to your behavior in your, that you want into your behavior, into what you actually do. And um, those are the six. Uh, that transcendent sense of self, diffusion, acceptance, the now, values, committed action. And everybody knows it. This is the irony. Everybody <laughs> yeah. knows all six. Yeah. There's only one part of you that doesn't, and it's your problem-solving mind. And it never will because it evolved for a different purpose. And it's all into judgment and comparing. and But... There's things your logical mind can't do, like it doesn't know how to have peace of mind. It doesn't know how to fall in love. It doesn't mm -hmm. know how to make values choices. It doesn't know how to leap into acceptance. It's constantly judging and comparison and comparing and wagging a finger even at you. So could we put that part of us on a leash so we have it when we need it? I want it. I don't want to be my little dog, Dio. You know, the coyotes would eat her without me right but or and can we use it when it's useful and use other parts of us when it's not and we do have modes of mind you know if you see a sunset tonight you're going to look at it and say wow you're not going to say a little too much pink god <laughs> yeah if you had a crying child in front of you talking about an abuse history you'd say wow you wouldn't say, don't talk to me about that. It's too disturbing. Right. So we know how to be wiser. It's just with the person in the mirror, we tend to slap that person around and, you know, poke them with a stick. And it's not wise. It's not kind. What would you like to see going forward with your life's work? Like if you could make manifest your absolute dream, um, what would it look like? Well, I'm kind of living that dream right now because, you know, I didn't, this book I've worked on for 11 years, but it summarizes almost 40 years of work, not quite 38 years of work. 
it's my life's work. It's really, and I'm, you know, I'm not doing this book again. Um, but the reason I didn't was that I wanted it to be well enough developed that it could be put into the world in a way that would have a chance to land well and echo well. And I knew the guru thing wasn't right. I quickly saw that the, you know, trademarked therapies with their fifth level of certification, where you'll get the anointing from the scientist. That's not right. Been there, know what that's about. I understand there's good things in there. You want to make sure your invention stays pure, but man, can you not smell ego in there? Yeah. Uh, so I didn't want to do that. And so like in the eighties, when we did the first randomized trials, we knew ACT worked. I only published one was to help my first PhD get a job. And the other ones went in the file drawer, not because they were unsuccessful, but because, precisely because they were successful. And we didn't publish any more randomized trials for 16 years. Because we worked on processes. I developed a theory of language. I showed that it worked, which is now an active research program. We developed measures. I worked on philosophy of science. Why? Because if we're going to walk into the lion's den of spirituality and wisdom, the kind of stuff monks have been working on for thousands of years with Western science tools, you're going to do that? I mean, you can put monks and magnets. That's not too hard. But if you're going to really walk in there and pull it at its joints without disrespect, this is not some sort of, you know, painting graffiti on the walls of the temples. That's not what we're doing here. But I want respectfully, because I care about Western science, to pull it to its joints and, and then show that that moves or find out but then increasingly it was like, yeah, that's true, that's true, that's true, to show all the places where that can be helpful. So I've summarized that story here, and really the answer to your question is I would like people to take the best of Western science, which I think is to figure out the processes yeah. and to not just create another you know, like lay church or thing you have to pay big buku bucks for or you know oh you won't you can't do this until you're certified or whatever all that and give it away 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 support people and so if you know you come hanging out with the act crew they don't care about act you know though you say talk about act but what they really care about are processes of transformation how do you put it into human hearts and heads and hands and can we do continue to do the science as to how to do that well and then give it away, give it away, give it away. And for the I'm wanting to penetrate the culture enough that the policymakers and the people who make choices about what we do in our mental health system and the people who make choices about what's in our diversity training and our businesses and are all these other gatekeepers and just know that there are things we can do that can set up the the people we love for prosperity instead of accidentally feeding the things that will um, fail them when they most need it. There's no amount of beautiful houses, wonderful cars, money in the bank, or great beers that are going to save you from facing the hell of your own history. Yeah. That's just not going to happen in a healthy way. 
that's a train wreck. And we need to be wiser. And I, I think the voice is out there, but uh, I hope I can lend my voice to those voices. And, and not just mine, on the beha- behalf of the whole community. The, uh, act, we actually call ourselves contextual behavioral scientists. We actually have a kind of a way of developing knowledge. And it doesn't just act, and we're the compassion-focused therapy types and mindfulness-based types and so forth. But yeah. I want to put that science tradition and its products into the hands of people who can use the knowledge. And that's I mean, what I'm trying to do with this book. I'm inspired by your work, and I will absolutely be carrying forward ACT into the next generation. So that is a promise that I'm willing to make to you. And the way that I like to end these podcasts are with a word association um, series of questions. Are you open to that? Sure. Cool. So I'm just going to say a word or a phrase, and then you just you know share whatever comes up. Word or phrase that captures your life philosophy? Love. Word or phrase that cuts to the core of who you are? Whole. What are you most afraid of? Pretense. What is your most persistent problem? Fear of pretense. Would you say you're more street smart or analytic? I've been trying to be both. Slow or fast-paced environments? I like fast. Rule follower or risk taker? Uh, Risk taker for sure. Is your need for control low, medium, or high? High, but I'm trying to get over it. That's my life's work. (laughs) Are you more intellectually or physically competitive? Both. But as I get older, (laughs) the only one that still functions is the intellectual one, and even that's sliding away. I'm way too competitive uh, for (laughs) that. Are you more critical of yourself or of others? Oh, me, easily. Fast or slow choices? Pretty fast. Pressure comes from? Within. And in the body, pressure feels like? Unease, like a punch in the stomach. In my community, I am... A king, a warrior, a magician, or a lover? I hope a warrior. It all comes down to? Love. Success is? Being there for others. And love. Love is well, I already said it's not everything, <laughs> it's the only thing. But I say it in another way. 
Love is the essence of it all. It's where we end up living inside our fate, knowing that we're going to die, knowing that everything you care about will pass away, and still love matters. Amor Fati. My vision. uh, So the seed is my vision? Yes. To create a behavioral science more worthy of the challenge of the human condition. I am. You. My purpose. Is to do something. You have to see the TED Talk to understand that one. (laughs) The most defining moment of my life. Was my night on the shag carpet. When at the very, very lowest, when everything was gone, when there was no way forward, and the only thing that could come out of my mouth was a scream, I somehow found a place to turn towards the dinosaur and say, I don't know who you are. Apparently, you can make me hurt and you can make me suffer, but you can't make me turn from my own experience. You can't do it. And I don't always live up to that, but man, um, that's a promise that I made to myself of I will not run from me. And this is the last question. It is the last day of your life. You know that you're going to die peacefully in your sleep at the end of the day. How would you want to spend that last day? Who would you want to spend it with? And if you could leave one note to your grandchildren, what would the note say? I would spend that day calling the people I love and writing some things down to the community in the world that I've tried to be part of and to help with and to uplift and to empower. And I think, what I would say is um, to stay true to yourself and to do what you can to bring love into the world and uh, don't let the temptation towards uh, ego and self-aggrandizement and all the things that at our worst we get hooked by or our fears and our self-doubts and our self-criticism. Don't let that be an enemy to that journey. It's actually just part of it. It's part of what we need to inhale in and carry with us without accidentally turning over this hero's journey that we're on, of showing up, not feeling adequate. We've been given a you know, a challenge and we don't think we have the resources. And as in all heroes journeys, finding that 
we have other strengths within and we have people around us who will help us. And if we focus on the challenge properly and give it our all, we can make progress. And that's in every story. It's why we go to the movies or yeah. read Lord of the Rings. And it's in your life. And it's in our journey as a species. And it's in the human cultural journey. And so let's walk that journey over, walk that cycle over and over again. And if I'm passing it on to the people behind, I'm saying, you know, you go for it. You know, you do your hero's journey, but keep your eye on the prize. And the prize is to how to bring love into the world. And uh, good luck. Dr. Stephen Hayes, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me.